Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1 again, which shouldn't be surprising. The God of the universe comes flying onto the scene right away in the first half sentence uh, of Scripture. If there's ever a place not to hurry, it would be here. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As we begin our study in the book of Genesis, the thing we first see is that God comes onto the scene. Shortly after, man comes onto the scene. And the rest of redemptive uh, history, the rest of the Scripture, describes the relationship between God and His people. Now it speaks of more than that, but fundamentally, this is what we see as we begin In fact, Gordon Wenham says this, Genesis 1 is the majestic opening chapter of both the Hebrew and Christian Bible. It introduces the two main subjects of Holy Scripture, God the Creator and man His creature, and sets forth the scene for the long tale of their relationship. Here's why I'm excited for this morning. Here's why I was blessed all week as I was able to dive in and consider what is it what it means when it says in the beginning God. Meaning God was already there before time. This is so incredibly practical. Like children, I want to talk to you right now. I want you to get this. If you think church is boring, one of the reasons you might think that is because you don't know who God really is. Or maybe you just know a little bit about Him. But today we're going to talk about God in a way that all of us, it makes our minds almost explode. There could be nothing more exciting and more practical than learning about who our God is. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 9, verses 9 through 11, when I used to read a psalm like this, I, would, I, I wouldn't think hard. Here's what it says. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell the peoples His deeds. So here's what, when I would read quickly, I would miss. 
We're told the fact that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed or for those who are in trouble. But then we're told who will actually run into that stronghold. We're told who will actually rely on the Lord. Every Christian knows God is a stronghold, that God is a mighty fortress, that those who run into it will be safe. But here's the question. Who will run into it? These verses that I just read tell us. Verse 10. Those who know your name put their trust in you. And when he says, those who know your name, he's not merely saying that we know the name of God. It means we know who God is and what He's like. We understand His attributes. We understand His greatness. Now children, think about this. If, if you're at Walmart and let's say you bump your head uh, on a, a clothing rack and you begin to cry and a total stranger comes up and wants to put his arm around you and comfort you, are you going to feel very comfortable? You might be a little scared because you don't know who this is. But if your mom comes and bends down and says, oh, sweetie, come here, you feel comforted. Why? Because you know who she is. You know that she loves you and she cares for you. Many people do not trust God because they don't know what He's like or who He is. Many times at bedtime, you know, you shut off the lights. I'm still speaking to the children here. You might be thinking, well, I'm scared. Or I got a bad thought in my mind. Or something I saw is making me worried. And your parent says, oh, well, trust God. Let's pray about it. But you might feel like it doesn't work. As soon as mom and dad leave, I am still scared. Have you ever felt like that? It's like you know all these things kind of about God, but it doesn't work. There was someone else that was actually a really smart Christian man that struggled with the same thing as an adult. His name was St. Augustine. All right? And uh, Ed Welch, in a, in a book called A Small Book for Anxious Hearts, tells this personal story that Augustine shared uh, essentially teaching the same thing. That while he tried to trust God, he found himself remaining anxious. And it was in regards to 1 Peter 5, verse 6. You've heard me talk about this before. So here's the verse that Augustine read. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. 
And here's what Ed Welch, uh, here's where he quotes Augustine or, or speaks of Augustine. He says this, Augustine tried to cast his cares on the Lord and it didn't work. That happens all the time. We ask Jesus to take away our miseries and our worries and nothing happens. So we move on to other strategies. Augustine, however, considered that perhaps the problem was with him, meaning himself, not with God. Thou God, and and this is quoting Augustine, Thou God were not to me any solid or substantial thing, for thou were not thyself but a mere phantom, and my heir was my God. If I offered to discharge my load thereon, that it might rest, it glided through the void and came rushing down on me again. Here's what he's saying. Augustine said, okay, Lord, here's my anxieties, here's my fears. You say that I'm to cast my cares upon you, for you care for me. And he would cast them up, and they would flow right back down on him. And he would remain anxious. And he would remain carrying them. And Augustine said, this is the problem. The God... I was casting them up to wasn't the God of the Bible. It was like a mere phantom. So that as as Augustine had a low view of God and he cast his cares up, that low view of God, which was like a mist, would just fall right back on him. And he would have to carry it. And so this morning, we're going to look at a text which challenges us to see God in such a glorious way that if you by faith, if you can pay attention and you can think hard, because you've got to think hard this morning, if your view of God can get stronger and you can understand who He is better, then when you cast your cares upon Him and you trust in that God, He will hold them. And you will experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. This is what we should be asking ourselves. Every time we come to church, who are we singing to? What God is in your mind when you are worshiping? When you tell other people about God, what kind of God are you telling them about? These are questions we ought to be asking ourselves. So when we begin in Genesis 1.1, and he says, in the beginning, God, meaning not that God had a beginning. He never had a beginning. When time began, God already was. Now that's hard to think about. To us, everything seems to have a beginning, right? God never had a beginning. And so he's telling us right away 
his own self-revelation, God wrote Genesis 1-1, that he is self-existent. And that's not true of anyone or anything else. So when we hear that God is holy, we might think, well, he never sins. Well, that's true. That's part of his holiness. But what it means to be holy is that you're utterly different. You're not like anything else. You're, You're cut apart. You're set apart. And so last week we talked about how God, if God is above the line, then everything else in all the creation is below the line. The creation is not God. God is utterly set apart from everything He has created. This is why secular philosophy and secular science is often so hostile towards God. We want to study things that we can come to the end of, that we can understand, that we can say, okay, that sits uh, firmly in my mind. But the creature can't do that with God. And this is why people try to make a God of their own imagination up so they can handle Him, so they can think of Him, so they can say, okay, Now I understand. Now I got him in my box. But the first book of the Bible doesn't allow us to do that with God. Even Christians can find it an arduous task to be thinking about God's person and character. How often do you spend thinking about God in these ways that challenge your thinking? Or do you just go quickly to the more simple things? Well, maybe that's why we find God boring. Because we actually create a God that doesn't exist in our mind. Now, I know as Christians, we're going to say, yeah, yeah, he is all those things that the Bible says he is. But here's my question. Is he in your heart? Do you trust that God? Or do you just say, yeah, that's true. The the Bible says it. Here's what A.W. Tozer writes. He says, few of us let our minds gaze at the wonder of the I am. The one who is. The self-existent self. Back of which no creature can think. Such thoughts are too painful for us. We prefer to think where it'll do more good. About how to build a better mousetrap, for instance. Or how to make two blades of grass grow where one grew before. And for this, we are now paying too heavy a price in the secularization of our religion and the decay of our inner lives. He's saying we just tend to the simple things. We don't want to think long and hard about an eternal God that had no beginning and had no end because we failed to see the practicality 
of it. Which I hope you will see uh, uh, by the end of the sermon this morning. You know, in Romans 1, the Bible tells us that because we're not holy, we actually suppress the truth about God. And we prefer to make a substitute. And at the end of Romans 1, it says that everyone in their flesh, everyone is born a hater of God. And I was just listening to something by R.C. Sproul this week. And he says, so often, as I would tell that to people, they would say, that's not true. I don't ever remember a time in my life where I didn't hate or where I hated God. I don't hate God. I never did hate God. I'm not even tempted to hate God. And here's what he said. He says, I know if you have any sin in you, you hate God. Because the opposite of sin is holiness. And God is holy. The same way a criminal doesn't love when a cop shows up, the sinful person doesn't love when the holy God of the universe shows up. And so here's what R.C. says. He says, the very fact that their God, that they say they won't hate, was already a substitute, an idol for the real God, reveals the depth of their hostility to God who is, to the God who is. Don't make any mistake about this. Your basic nature is to hate the God who made you. For the greatest enemy to sin is holiness. In our, in our, we are not holy and we know it. That is why we want to push God out of our minds. And so the question is, if you, or let's just say that's your answer. I don't hate God. R.C.'s challenge is, is that's because you've already made a substitute God up in your mind. If you're comfortable with your God in your mind, He's not the God of the Bible. If you run into the God of the Bible, you will say with the psalmist, surrounding Him is a devouring fire and a tempest. It's like an F5 tornado. <laughs> you don't run into people that have a God like this, separate, holy, not contingent on anything else. And so as we look at verse 1 in Genesis, the first attribute we see is this attribute of God's aseity, which is a Latin word. It's not necessarily important that you know the word. What's important is you understand what it means. It's a compound word that Begins with A, which means out of, out, and C, which is self, a seity. So God has his existence out of himself, which means he had no beginning. No one created him. He's not contingent on anything else. Herman 
uh, Baving says this. He defines a seity like this. God is whatever he is by his own self or of his own self. He adds that a seity is commonly viewed as the first of the attributes and even says that all other attributes were derived from this one. The idea is, is that God is not in any way dependent on anything outside of himself. But he has sufficient resources within himself for all that he is and does. In this way, God's uh, lordship is absolute and independent of anything he has created. So if he has his existence in himself, he has all sufficiency in himself. If he's the creator of the universe, then who does God answer to? He answers to no one, for he's holy. Here's how John Frame describes a seity. It means that he is sufficient to himself, independent of anything outside of himself. And then when you think of a seity, not in regards to existence, but in regards to time, here's what Frame says. God's eternality, another attribute, is his aseity with respect to time. The Lord of time, existing above and apart from it, but free to enter it to accomplish his purposes. Because he is the creator of time, he stands above it, but he enters it freely to do his will. He transcends time in that he has no beginning or end. He does not change. He is equally conscious of past, present, and future, and he is not limited by the passing of time in what he can accomplish. God can enter in time. He created it. But because he created it, he by nature stands outside of it. God can see past, present, and future standing outside of it at the same time and know it all just as well as the present. We forget the past. Do you remember the sins you committed last year on this date? You don't. And that kind of comforts us. God remembers them like He did it just today. Unless you're under the blood of Christ. Will God remember that He died for you? Well, sure He will. It's as if He's watching it right now. God doesn't forget. God is different than us. All of our thoughts are within time. God's thoughts are not within time. Have you ever thought in your mind that God has forgotten about you? Well, you've created a God that is a substitute God. For the God of the Bible cannot forget. You know, there's liberal theologians that try to argue that God doesn't know the future. Well, if God doesn't know the future, He's not God. <laughs> because the future is a created thing. God started things in the beginning. And so we think of his aseity, and when we think of his aseity having existence in himself 
we're going to look at five ways, five selves that God has in and of Himself this morning. All right? God is self-existent. This is what Scott was talking about in Sunday school. Uh, in Exodus 3, uh, when Moses is being tasked to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh, or and Moses uh, said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who's Moses looking at? He says, who am I? Why is Moses looking at himself? He's talking to the God who is talking to him out of a bush that's on fire that's not burning. But his eyes are on himself. And then he said, but I will be with you, God says. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Who's God going point to you, point to to say I'm like that? He can't point to anything. But he says, say to them, I am who I am. I have existence in and of myself. And he said to them, say to this people of Israel, I am as sent you. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So the God who is, is a God that has a personal covenant relationship with his creatures. He is self-existent. We could go to many verses. This is true of Jesus. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He had no beginning. And no wonder they tried to stone him at that point to make such a claim. And if he is self-existent, then he's the sovereign God who answers to no one. Think about this. God's self-existence also means he's not answerable to us. We do not like that. We want God to give an account of himself to defend his actions. But while he sometimes explains things to us, he does not have to, and he often does not. God does not have to explain himself to anybody. You realize that? He can reveal what he wants to reveal, and he can hide what he wants to hide. The revealed things are for you. The secret things are for the Lord. And who's going to tell him that he's wrong? You remember Job, who was suffering for he could not figure out what reason. He could not figure it out, and towards the end of Job, he wants a meeting with God. 
He's got questions to ask God. And how does God begin to deal with this incredible sufferer? In fact, maybe you're suffering right now. And you think, maybe you think you know what you need. Maybe you think as a sufferer that the first and most important thing is, is you need the compassion of God and, the, and the, to know that God cares. Well, He does care. That's true. But God didn't think Job needed to hear that. The man who suffered more than any man I've ever met. Here's how God begins with Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. All right. There's the tornado again. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? All right. The first thing he says is, you don't know as I know. You think you know. You think you've thought through everything. You don't know as I know. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I'll question you, and you'll make it known to me. So God showed up, but He didn't show up to answer questions that Job had. He showed up to ask questions. And here's the questions He asked. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And where were its bases sunk? Or who let, laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed the limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And he goes on and he goes on and he goes on. And Job ends up all right. You see, Job never gets the question to why am I suffering answered. God, you've got to help me understand this. Did I sin? Is that why I'm suffering? Is it so you're going to use me to lead someone to Christ? You know, this is what we do. We, we have to make sense of everything. And yet God tells us what we need to know. He put His Son on the cross who suffered more than you'll ever suffer to answer the question, do you care for me? Do you love me? But what we need to remember is we are not God and He is God. His wisdom is greater than our wisdom. He doesn't owe us answers. He doesn't have to answer our questions. By His grace, He reveals so much to us. But God doesn't have to answer our questions. Why? He's not contingent upon us. We're contingent upon Him. He has self-existence, which means all life is in Him. 
You know, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Listen to John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the Word is facing towards God in the beginning, and the Word is God. Here we have the Father and the Son in relationship in the beginning before He created anything. And then we see, read this, all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. All life is in God. There is no life apart from God. John 5.26 says this, For as the Father has life in Himself, you, you hear that? A seity? For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Which means Jesus didn't get His life from some foreign source, which means Jesus is God, like the Father is God, which means they're both holy. They're different. They're set apart. So secondly, after we consider the fact that He's self-existent, now let's look at His self-sufficiency. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 17. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. <clears throat> so all the Roman gods are set up before the Apostle Paul, and he wants to begin preaching the Gospel. He wants people to hear about a type of God they've never heard about before. Here's what he says. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. All right, get this. God has no needs. You will never serve him as though he needs anything. God calls us to serve him but He doesn't call us to serve Him because He needs us. If you thought, I need to come to church because He needs me, or I need to share the Gospel because He needs me to do that so that people will be saved, you're thinking of a God of your own imagination. God is never served as though He needs anything. He is self-sufficient. God has no needs. 
So if you came here to worship because you know God commanded you to worship and to glorify Him, and then you thought, because He needs worship, you're not thinking of the God of the Bible. Yes, God's called you to glorify Him and to worship Him. But it's not because you can add one ounce of glory to Him. You can't add any glory to God. But you can ascribe the one who is worthy of worship. You can show up and say, you want to know what's right? That this creature here worships the God who is. The creator of all things. Of everyone and everything. Isn't it good? Imagine if God had needs. What happens to His promises at the end? What if His needs aren't met? Can you still trust Him? God is self-sufficient. Job 41.11 God talking to Job. Who has first given to me that I should repay Him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. What are you going to bring God as a gift? You're going to bring Him your life? Where'd you get that? He created it. So we can never give to God in a way where we make Him a debtor to us. You see that? He's self-sufficient. This statement where Paul kind of goes crazy after talking about our salvation and the glory of our election and of the grace of God, he, he culminates, he says this, oh, this is Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. God is self-sufficient. Like we read in Psalm 50, where God is saying, I've had enough of your burnt offering. You want to know, if, you want, if you want to glorify me, be thankful. Recognize that I'm the giver, not you. You're not feeding me like the Romans were trying to feed their gods in order that their gods would do something for them. And so they would sacrifice to these gods, hoping, hoping the gods would be kind to them. That's not the God of the Bible. God says, if I'm hungry, I'm not picking up the phone and calling you. All the cattle are mine. All the birds are mine. He's self-sufficient in and of himself. We're not self-sufficient. We're dependent. When he was speaking to Israel, as they're about to enter the promised land and going to be taken care of by God. God was concerned 
that they were going to become proud and forget him. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 8, 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Have you ever thought that thought? My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Well, you might be apt to say, no, I've never thought that. Let me ask you this. Have you ever looked down on someone that doesn't work as hard as you do? and say they don't deserve a handout. They should have to work for it. Well, then they're, And then thought, I had to work hard for what I got. I had to sacrifice for what I got. Why can't people be more like me? Well, if you've ever thought a thought like that, then you've thought a thought like this, by my power and the might of my hand have got me this wealth. Well, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. That passage goes on to say that He's given you the wisdom and the power to make money. You ought to be thankful. Rather than feel sorry for yourself or how hard you have to work to get an income, we ought to be thankful that we can work and that we can get an income. Our hearts ought to overflow with thanksgiving to the God who is always the giver. Luke 17.10 says, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Jesus is saying, this is the perspective you should have. After you've done all that your master's commanded, you should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was asked of us. How can he say that? Well, if he's the creator and we're the created, then he can say that. Well, we didn't get close to the end of the sermon. But I want to stop here in our notes that he is this self-sufficient. And I want to draw it to a close by this question, by thinking of this. If this is the God who is your God, if you think about these things, if you ponder these things, if this is the God in, in your mind, and then you read the promises of God, I would argue that your God will be so substantial that your faith will be so much greater, not because of the power of your faith, but because of the accuracy of the one whom you have faith in, the object of your faith. You know, we talk about people with such a great faith, such a strong faith, and what we picture is someone saying, boy, I'm committed, and, and I'm really working hard to believe. That's not a great faith. A great faith is someone who is putting their trust in the great God. 
And even the faith of a mustard seed, the weakest of all believers, if they begin in their mind to believe God is who He says He is, they have a great faith that will be powerful, that will catch anxieties and cares we cast up to Him. So let me just throw a few promises out at the end here. How about Romans 10.9? Here's an important one. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Can He come through on that promise? The God who has a seity cannot change. He's not contingent upon anyone or anything. He can't be defeated. He can't make a promise like that and then say, oh, I thought I could pull it off. He's already pulled it off in Jesus Christ. What good news. Or Matthew 6 where He's speaking to His disciples, trying to get them to see how great a giver His Father is. He says, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these flowers. And then He says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more are will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Do you believe God knows every need you have? Clothing, food, pay the bills, everything. Do you believe in a God that can know every need? And then he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Can He come through on that promise? How often, I'll put myself forward as exhibit A, do I doubt that every need is going to be cared for? I know it intellectually, but the anxiety in my heart would often tell you otherwise. How about a Philippians 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do you believe He's here right now? Caring and knowing every aspect of your life? And then he says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. All this anxiety, take it to Him, roll it over onto Him, cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Pray your anxieties to the God of the Bible, and listen to this promise. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If an eight-year-old can do it, 
you can do it by the grace of God. At bedtime, there's two options. I can walk down the worry road where I forget who God is and I let the scary thought fill my mind. I let the anxiety run through my mind. My girls can do this. You walk down the worry road, there is only problems as you walk down that road. It gets worse and it gets worse and it gets more scary and you become more anxious. But you don't have to walk down the road. There's another road that we call the trust road where what we remember in our minds is who God is. Yes, mom and dad will walk out of this room and the lights will remain off, but the God who is, He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. If you believe that that's your God and trust in Him, you walk down the faith road. And you want to know what's down the faith road? The peace that surpasses all understanding. Which means it doesn't seem like it's going to be there. But it will be there. And the only thing you can point to is it's from God. How important is it that you know and study theology about who God is? Well, it's as important as the strength of your faith. It just determines everything about your life. If you want to skip across the tops of a shallow view of God that's nice and comfortable, well, what you're going to pay for when that happens is when the cancer diagnosis comes and you have a happy, slappy preacher standing up trying to make you feel good and five self-help tips. That's going to do you no good in a fallen world. You've got to have the God that comes onto the scene at the beginning of Genesis. He has to be substantial. And He is. We only got through half of it. Father, as we study all Your ways, we know that we're only at the foothills of Your glory. You are the eternal God. You have self-existence in Yourself. But You're also the personal God. Father, I pray that our thoughts would be big thoughts about You. Lord, I pray that we would spend much more of our time thinking about who You are than what possible troubles could be down the road in front of us. Father, we know that walking the worry road like that will only get worse. Father, You're who we need to see. Our whole life is contingent upon You. We thank You that You are the God who happily carries us and sustains us and saves us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.